So really, when people are afraid, they tend not to put things into words. And when it just kind of goes off into this separate part of the brain where it becomes a secret. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger, and I'm here with producer Jason DeFilippo. Jason, this is an interesting one, man. We almost uh, didn't make it. This one almost didn't make the calendar just because of our crazy holiday schedule, but I'm glad it did. I'm so glad it did. I love this book and I love Meg J. And I th- I'm so glad we got this one in because I think this is one's going to be really valuable to a lot of people. Yeah. Today we're talking with Dr. Meg J. She's a clinical psychologist who specializes in adult development. She's got doctorates in clinical psychology and gender studies from the University of California, Berkeley, of course. And today we'll discover why childhood adversity can actually help us become high achievers depending on how we react to it. We'll also explore the idea that having two little adversity in our lives can actually be harmful to us in the long run, and we'll uncover how we can not only develop resilience, but moderate our resilience in such a way that we get all the benefits without the drawbacks that cause problems in our lives and in our relationships later on down the line. If you've had a rough childhood, you know someone who has, or are simply as fascinated with psychology as I am, you'll love this episode. And don't forget, we have a worksheet for today's episode, as always here, so you can make sure you solidify your understanding of the key takeaways from Meg J. That link is in the show notes at theartofcharm.com slash podcast. All right, let's dive in with Dr. Meg J. Thanks for coming on today. I read the book Super Normals. I dig it. At first I was thinking, oh man, you know, this sounds like it could be a little depressing, but it quickly piqued my interest because much like many Super Normals, I had no idea that there were so many people that succeeded in spite of adversity. But let's back up the truck a little bit and start with what the term supernormal even means. Sure. So the word supernormal means above the normal or average. And I'm playing with the word in the book really as a stand-in for the word resilient, because to me, that's what resilient people are. They have better than average outcomes after adversity. And what I like about the word is that it hints at how heroic that is, that it takes a lot of strength and courage to get out there and rise above your circumstances. So these are people that experienced a lot of adversity as children exclusively, or is this something that can happen when you're a young adult? You know, it's something that can happen at any time. In general, the book is about people who, before the age of 20, grew up with, and I wouldn't say a lot of adversity as much as it is the most common adversities. And that, you know, is anything from alcoholism in the home or mental illness in the home or bullying or domestic violence, sexual abuse, etc. So, I mean, these are really more common than people realize, especially when you consider them all together. 75% of us have grown up with at least one of these common adversities. In the book, Supernormal, you do argue that these people are becoming successful not in spite of the adversity. I think I've said that before, but actually because of the early adversity. I think that's unusual and counterintuitive. What's going on here? Well, I think that for many people who've grown up with tough times, especially those who figured a way out of it, by the time they get to adulthood, they're really good at coping with tough things. So, you know, whether it's med school or that cross-country move or whatever it is, by the time people get to adulthood, they're used to coping. They're used to coping with stress and they're used to looking at a situation and saying failure is not an option. And, you know, that doesn't mean that adversity is all upside, but many people who've made it to the other side will say, I feel competent, I feel confident, I feel stronger and more courageous than a lot of other people. How common is this type of adversity? 
In the book, you mentioned stories from Andre Agassi, Jay-Z, a lot of celebrities. And of course, it's easy to say, well, you know, those are celebrities. They're already highly unusual people. How often is this happening in nature, in the wild? All the time. I include a lot of public figures in the book. And I did that not to say this is how successful you need to be to be resilient. I did it to say, hey, if you're struggling or you feel less than or abnormal because of your background, you're actually in really good company. But what we know is that 75% of people are going to grow up with something. And many of those people, you know, we can't put a number on it, but millions are hiding in plain sight as, you know, doctors, teachers, lawyers, artists, CEOs, activists, entrepreneurs. I mean, they're everywhere. You know, it's interesting because you just may look at someone and see how successful they are, but not imagine that behind that is a story that might be a big surprise. In the book, you do mention nearly 75% of us experience life-altering adversity of this kind by the age of 20, whether it be the loss of a parent to death or divorce, bullying, substance abuse in the home, mental illness in a parent or sibling. And there's actually quite a nice laundry list of terrible things that can happen to us as children. This isn't just common, it's actually almost universal. And that was really one of the motivations that I had for writing the book is so I'm a psychologist. So I work with people one on one behind closed doors all the time. And over and over, I hear people say, I'm not like other people. I feel like I'm looking at the world from the outside in. I feel alienated. I'm not normal. And what people don't realize is that sadly, experiencing adversity is the norm. That if you think about one adversity at a time, whether that's having an alcoholic parent or having a parent who's in jail, it's a small percentage of the population. But if you look at the adversities together under the umbrella of childhood adversity, then it's actually the majority that people aren't as abnormal or as different as they think they are. So exposure to some adversity makes us stronger. I mean, there's cliches that talk about this, right? What doesn't kill us makes us stronger. Too much adversity obviously is bad because we see the results of that in society. One prison documentary should be enough to let you know that (laughs) too much adversity as a kid can turn you into something quite terrible. But you also mentioned that too little adversity is also bad. That was interesting for me. Of course, I would have thought, well, the kids who had perfect parents, perfectly happy families, went to amazing schools. I know plenty of those people. The sky's the limit, but that is also not good for the child somehow. It's interesting, but it's actually one of the largest studies of adversity. It was done by Mark Seary at SUNY Buffalo. It had over 2,000 subjects, ages 18 to 101. And what they found was that people who had experienced no adversity were less satisfied, less successful, less high-functioning, if you will, than people who had experienced moderate amounts. And, you know, where moderate and where too much, where that ends and begins is probably different for everyone. But, you know, many people think if I had had a perfect life, I would be a happier person. It's not necessarily true. I think many people say, you know, I might wish that X, Y, or Z hadn't happened to me, yet I can see that the way it has made me stronger or have more meaning in my life or feel more purposeful or feel more contented that I feel lucky to have what I have. So having a little bit of adversity actually is better than not having any, which is, of course, better than having way too much, of course. So do we end up with 
this kind of superpower as a result of this adversity? Because in the book, you argue that abused people have an amazing awareness that almost seems like a superpower because their nonverbal skills are so highly tuned. Can you explain why our nonverbal skills would get highly tuned due to situations that might happen inside the house that are actually considered maybe abusive or suboptimal? And it's even not just inside the house. It may be your neighborhood or, you know, soldiers will talk about this after having been in combat that when you're in a situation that feels like a threat or that feels dangerous, your brain clicks in to fight or flight and people tend to become more vigilant. You have to really pay attention to your surroundings. That's how you adapt and how you survive. And so a lot of people who grow up with hardship, they're very good at reading people. They're very good at reading situations. They can be extremely savvy problem solvers. And so the fight and fight or flight is not always sort of this, I'm going to charge ahead and make success happen for me. A lot of times it's about this special sort of vigilance where you're able to really pay attention and spot danger before other people, but also spot opportunity before other people too. When we're kids, the precursor to the mirror is the mother's face, right? This is something that I got, of course, also from Supernormal. And looking at that first self-image we get by examining the reactions of our parents, this to me is fascinating because it seems to dovetail with what you just said about us having a heightened sense of awareness while those situations are going on in the home. This might even start from the crib. It doesn't have to start when we're 14 and our parents start getting divorced. This is something that's wired into us and then gets dialed in. It's not something that gets programmed later. It's sort of a latent program that's running in the background that can get turned up to 11 by situations that are happening in the home or outside the home. Exactly. So actually, the definition of resilience, according to the APA, is adapting well after adversity. So resilient people adapt, and it just depends on what they need to adapt to. So if you have an alcoholic in the home or a mentally ill sibling or an abusive sibling or a neighborhood bully, one way to be adaptive is to pay really close attention to what's going on around you. You know, that can lead to a lot of let's say, good things in terms of people become, like I said, savvy problem solvers. It can also be hard later on when you become used to functioning that way in terms of how to dial it down or how to go to sleep at night when your brain has been, you know, on overdrive, vigilant mode all day long. But, you know, that quote you said about the precursor to the mirrors, the mother's face, it really drives home the point of how much our parents' reactions to us matter. I mean, if I shift topics a little bit to emotional abuse, people often don't see how that could be as serious as physical abuse. But we know the ramifications are similar. I mean, that can be just as serious because children are wired to look at their parents and see, what do they think about me? What do they feel about me? It's like looking in the mirror before you're old enough to look in a mirror and you see what's reflected back at you. In Supernormals, you mentioned that our actions and beliefs drift further and further apart. And the example you gave, I think, was Andre Agassi. And essentially, it was the idea that if we're undergoing some sort of adversity in the home, what we think and feel is not what we actually do. Often, we're living for other people instead of living for ourselves. So our actual self has almost this, at best, a secret life. We start to just do one thing kind of robotically, and then our inner self, our true self, our actual self, it's kind of just stuck, and we kind of give up on even expressing it, which seems like a recipe for depression or worse, frankly. 
And what's going on here? I feel like a lot of people who have experienced this have described similar symptoms like this or a similar mindset like this. And this to me was quite fascinating that you would just become so used to dealing with whatever trauma you've got going on in your life that you realize that your true self shouldn't maybe even be expressed at all because it's just not worth it or there's no time and energy to do so. Right, or it's dangerous. And so I think Andre Agassi's book, Open, it's a memoir that he wrote, it's really amazing. And he talks about how he never actually wanted to play tennis. He actually never wanted to go to Wimbledon. That was something that his father wanted. And his father was pretty emotionally abusive, if not also physically abusive. And so he playing tennis was a role that he played. It was, you know, an act that he put on in a certain way. And so a lot of resilient people, they adapt by doing what the situation demands, but then often they get to adulthood and they don't know who they really are besides that role that they're playing, or they can't remember who they wanted to be other than that person they felt they needed to be. And that can be the work of adulthood is, okay, if I'm safe now, now what? Who am I really besides what other people want from me? So how come supernormals keep their trauma hidden? It seems like a lot of people who have this don't know that they're not alone. And yet when you read things like supernormals, the book, you look at stories online, you read other people's books, it seems like it's everywhere. And yet when it's happening to us, we tend to think, well, you know, but my situation's different, or, uh, well, that's not that common. Maybe Johnny Cash had it, maybe Andre Agassi had it, but then there's me, little old lonely me, and I'm not a celebrity. <laughs> I mean, most people who write memoirs, they tend to be outliers to start with. I mean, they're usually already famous people who are in a good place to be able to tell their stories or that people would be interested, or their stories are so extreme that they're just inherently interesting. And so I wanted to write a book really about everyday people who have really prototypical experiences of, you know, the alcoholic parent, the abusive sibling, the parent in jail, et cetera. And actually, there aren't a lot of books like that. I mean, they're usually the extremes. And then we read them and we go, I kind of relate to that, but I feel sort of bad because my adversity isn't that extreme. So really what you're reading in Supernormal are the absolutely prototypical examples that people live with every single day, but that you don't actually quite read in everyday stories. And certainly not all in the same book. You know, you might read a book about adult children of alcoholics or sexual abuse survivors, but you don't ever read about the prototypical stories in the same book saying, hey, I mean, this is sort of a big Me Too book. You're listening to The Art of Charm with Jordan Harbinger and today's guest, Meg J. So stick around and we'll get right back to the show after these important messages. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. 
So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Thank you for listening and supporting The Art of Charm. To learn more about our sponsors, visit theartofcharm.com slash advertisers. Now, let's get back to more with Jordan and Meg Jay. How does this relate to the concept of resilience? A lot of people think we need to bounce back from everything, we need to bounce back all the time because we need to have grit or because we gotta hustle or because resilience or some other buzzword. It seems like an idea that we have to quickly bounce back from some sort of difficult period, whereas in supernormals, it sounds like maybe this is something that's happening for years and years and years. It's a daily battle. It's not, gee, last month was tough or last year was tough. It's, this is my life and it's hard. Right. What I have noticed in working with people, many of whom have been very successful, unexpectedly successful after growing up with hard times. And I always ask them, do you consider yourself to be resilient? And they almost always say no. And they say, well, if I was resilient, I wouldn't need you. I wouldn't have struggled. It wouldn't have taken me so long. It wouldn't have been hard. I would have just bounced back because that's what people say about resilience. They say they rebounded or they bounced back. But that's not actually what resilient people do. I mean, you might do that after a hard day at work, but you're not going to bounce back from the kind of adversities that we're talking about. So if you listen to how people talk about their experiences, they say, I battled back, I fought back, I was a survivor, I was scrappy. You know, but as you're noticing in the book about vigilance or about the smart use of the flight mechanism, there's more to it than just fighting back and all the ways that people adapt you know, it's different also for most people is kind of a sustained process, something that takes a while. Is there a psychic cost to then fighting to be resilient every single day? Yes. And so that can be a little bit tough to hear because we'd like to imagine resilient people as sort of Mr. Magoo's. Do you remember the old Mr. Magoo cartoons where boulders come crashing down and he just sort of keeps driving unaffected? And that's not actually what it's like to be resilient, that resilient people are living in fight or flight. They are fighting back for an extended period of time. And over time, that catches up because you become overexposed to your stress hormones. So, you know, by adulthood, many resilient people are saying, nobody knows it, but I'm really tired or I feel really isolated or, you know, I've struggled with depression or anxiety or substance abuse along the way because resilient people aren't perfect. They aren't superheroes, but they're people trying to do something very heroic. Basically, in layman speak, it sounds like supernormals are using the fight or flight response to attack problems or develop skills instead of for something that might lead to them becoming dysfunctional or more dysfunctional. Is there any way that we can encourage this in other people and in ourselves? Or is it just that some of us are lucky because we chose to do the focus thing instead of choosing to be stupid and go to prison or get attached to our victim story? Oh, that's such a good question. I'm going to start with a dodge by telling you a 
cool parable that a minister shared with me. And that's <laughs> that. Nice. So two brothers grow up in the same house with a father who's an abusive alcoholic. And one of the brothers grows up to be a drinker and a, you know, a violent man. And the other brother grows up to be an abstinent man and a model parent. And the minister asks both of the brothers, how do you think you became who you were? And they both gave the same answer. They both said, given who my father was, how could I not? And what I like about the parable is that it shows the mystery that you've got, you know, two people often in the very same situation, but who are individuals and they react differently to the same situation. It also kind of hints at where some people see the inevitability to repeat the past or to sort of let their past determine their future. Other people are determined to do it differently. And I think that's something we don't hear about enough is how possible that is that we hear a lot about the cycle of violence and the cycle of abuse and the cycle of alcoholism, cycle of divorce. The research behind all that is pretty thin. And what we do know is what's passed down within families and communities is risk. But what matters at least as much is what are the strengths that that person or that family or that community brings to the situation and that people every day decide to do it differently than it was done to them when they were kids. So super normal people have a certain set of maybe innate traits that have them select for that instead of just going, well, now I've got a license to be crazy or subconsciously acting out and then letting that take over their whole life. You know, people want a formula. They want to know what's the trait, you know, what's the silver bullet. And, you know, I really appreciate that social scientists have agreed to call resilience a phenomenon which is a phenomenon is something that we see, you know, we know it when we see it, but we can't entirely explain it. Because it is true that we'll never be able to explain why this person just had this one strength, but managed to take it all the way to the moon. And this other person had four or five strengths, yet couldn't get out of a situation that was similar. You know, so there's no one innate trait a lot of it depends, too, on, you know, some of the luck of the draw. I mean, some people are given more of a fighting chance than others in terms of strengths within their extended families or within their communities that give them something to grab onto, no matter what they have within themselves. You mentioned the power of community or having maybe a set of innate traits, but also someone who cared, mentors, family, a teacher, a coach. Is that part of the formula that we say that there isn't? that doesn't exist? Is that possibly part of it? That is the formula that doesn't exist. I like how you put that. And umpteen studies, I won't bore you with the details, you know, have concluded that one of the best predictors about whether you'll fare well after an adversity is whether or not there was someone who cared. You know, that person could be a sibling, a best friend, a neighbor, a mentor, a teacher. And what I think is interesting is many people assume that there was this one person and they took you into their home and they took you out of their bad situation and they gave you a scholarship to college and they just got behind you 100%. Not that often does it go that way. Often what people will say was that there were different people who cared about me a little bit here, a little bit there, and that resilient people tend to put all that together or grab onto it as they go along and use that to sustain themselves. But almost always there were people around whether they knew it or not, who were lifting up the child or the teen. 
When we discuss resilience and when you discuss resilience in the book, I'm wondering, is there anything that we can do to encourage that type of response or process? And I know that you have some exercises that can help people with the ongoing battle as opposed to the one-time bounce. And one thing that you had mentioned that we talked about pre-show was owning the fighter within. Can you speak to that a little bit? You know, a lot of the people who come to my office, like I said, this is human nature. They have a tendency to focus on the adversity and not even see their own resilience, or they see the ways that they feel broken and they don't recognize the ways they've been courageous and strong. And so for a lot of people, it's a bit of a paradigm shift to notice how they got from where they were to where they are now and to see that as an active process that they themselves made happen and to, you know, own, how did they do that? What decisions did they make? What actions did they take? What risks did they take to get where they are? But to see themselves as the active problem solvers that they are, that many people are more resilient than they realize because they just haven't been asked to focus on what it was that they did to rise above. So we can kind of rewrite our own origin story. Yes. I think that's part of moving from seeing yourself as abnormal to, gosh, you know, I grew up with this situation. This puts me on the outside of all the normal people. And, you know, as we talked about, statistically speaking, to grow up with adversity is unfortunately the norm. And then if you scoot it a little bit more to think of yourself as, hey, maybe I'm even super normal because my outcome has been better than average, better than would have been expected for me to just to have gotten to where I am, that for people who've grown up with trauma or with adversity, the ordinary is really extraordinary because the odds are against them. Is there a way that supernormals may actually become, I don't want to say too resilient, but a lot of us, a lot of folks out there who are dealing with adversity have learned how to protect ourselves from dangerous people but then a lot of times the armor might be so thick that it causes us problems later on down the line, especially in intimate relationships or in our inability to form intimate relationships in the first place. What can we do about that? A lot of resilient people become successful because they've done a good job of fighting back in fight or flight all these years, which can help you get to school every day or maybe make it to college or the military or that job. That helps people be successful, especially in the workplace. Living in fight or flight is not necessarily so helpful for being in relationships. And as we talked about earlier, relationships are really one of the best predictors for resilience over the long run. So we need those too. So that's really about switching from surviving, you know, living in fight or flight to thriving. And for most adults, thriving after childhood adversity is about letting them have people in their lives too, or letting them have love in their lives too, switching out of, I just have to stay alive to what do I really want in my life so that I feel contented or I feel happy. But relationships can be the most difficult places to be brave because most people have been hurt in the context of relationships. Hey, you've made it this far, so fingers off that skip button and we'll be right back with more from Meg J after these brief announcements. Thanks for listening and supporting The Art of Charm. Your support keeps us on the air. So for a list of all the discounts from our amazing sponsors, visit theartofcharm.com slash advertisers. Now, here's the conclusion of our interview with Meg J. We get a lot of people at our live programs 
who have dealt with this type of thing in one way or another, and your exercise of writing out a list of those who you feel grateful for, maybe write heartfelt letters to people, basically kind of forcing them to open up on their own terms and share something, even if they never send the letter, these kinds of things I think can lower the shield a little bit in a way that's healthy, that's not ripping open an old wound necessarily, especially if you don't have to send it. So I think that these types of things are quite useful, as well as, of course, teaching people how to have the skill set to talk to people about this kind of thing. Right. So the exercise or the advice of, hey, you know, write out a list of people who helped you or who cared about you along the way. The reason for that is that our brains are wired to keep us alive, not happy. So we tend to focus on the dangerous people, the bad memories, the bad moments, because that's survival. We actually have to work extra hard to focus on the gravy, the good stuff. So the people who cared, the people who spend the night over at their house on the weekends and we could get away from our own homes or that teacher who helped or that coach who encouraged us, that we actually have to work extra hard to remember those people as much as the not so great people. But in doing that, it helps shift the focus from the notion that, you know, the world is made up of bad people to, well, there's some good people out there, too, and many people who have cared about me. Yeah, I can see how dealing with a lot of adversity as a young person or as a child might wire our brains with that fight or flight response, which might also give us a filter that everyone's out to get you. Everyone could potentially victimize or hurt you in some way because, look, even my Big brother, big sister, parents, uncles, friends did this, so you can't trust anyone. So you kind of have to create these lists and write these letters in order to poke holes in that theory. Otherwise, you might start to believe that literally everyone aside from you is just waiting to rip your heart out or victimize you in some way. Right, that you really have to retrain your brain or help your brain focus on the good. And I don't mean the upside of adversity, because a lot of people will say, I'm not sure that there's a bright side. I mean, maybe in some ways, but in terms of really just focusing on the good people that were there, because there were always some good people there. And, you know, some people had more help along the ways than others. But helping us remember who was there for us gives us courage to find the next safe person and the next good person. And so on. And that's what really helps people thrive. And it's also what helps people move out of fight or flight is realizing I'm in a safe place and I'm with some good people. I've learned a new word from you here, lexothymic. What that means is if we can't put feelings into words because we don't have the vocabulary, we kind of don't know how to process the feeling itself. What is that all about? I've never heard of that. And it completely makes sense intuitively. I mean, one of the earliest chapters is called Secret, and it's about how, you know, most people who grow up with adversity keep it a secret. And this usually isn't intentional. It's not some sort of crafty decision to be dishonest with people around them, but they have things happening, you know, an abusive parent or an alcoholic parent or an abusive sibling. And they're aware that maybe it doesn't seem so great, but when no one talks about what the problem is, that no one names it, they act like it's not happening, then we can't name it either. And so secrets actually happen by default. And actually, we also know that when the brain feels threatened or endangered, that the speech center shuts down, probably so that back when you lived in the wild, if you were afraid, it kind of kept you from 
shrieking, you know, and putting yourself in more danger. So really, when people are afraid, they tend not to put things into words. And when the adults around them don't help them do that and say, what you just experienced was X, then it just kind of goes off into the separate part of the brain where it becomes a secret that it's just this experience that lives there that doesn't have words that can't be expressed to other people. So it's one reason why people don't often talk about their problems until they're older and they start to notice other people talking about similar things and going, oh, that's what that was. I never knew there was a name for that. I never knew that that's what was happening to me. Is that why people get up on stage and can't speak? Is that what's going on there? <laughs> I hadn't thought about that before, but that probably does have something to do with stage fright. And this becomes a problem as far as processing the trauma that might be experienced, right? Because as you said in the book, the unlinkable is unthinkable, aka we have no tools or software or operating system with which to process those feelings because we don't have the words. And that right. happens especially when we're young and we don't really understand what it is we're experiencing at that particular moment. Exactly. If we don't have words for it, we can't process it. We can't talk about it. We literally say, I mean, think of the things we say. We say, I don't have words for that. I don't know where to do that. I don't know where to put that. I don't know what to do with that. That's us saying, I don't know what this is. And I use a really cool example in the book, the story of the Chowchilla kidnapping. I won't go into the whole story now, but as you read, some kids are kidnapped in this pretty crazy story. And in the end, they're rescued. Um, but none of them called it a kidnapping because they didn't know what that was. And they didn't realize that's what was happening to them. They just basically, you know, knew this really strange thing had happened, but they were unable to even call it a kidnapping because they didn't know what the word meant. That was terrifying. I had to look that up and it just basically a bunch of creeps just kidnapped a school bus full of kids and then buried the whole group of them in a buried truck. Yeah. Yeah. Just a very creepy situation. It shows us so much because it talks about how the kids just they coped, you know, they all hung out and they sang, you know, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. They had been kidnapped. They escaped. And when they were taken to get help, the doctors all said, well, they seem all right. And, you know, none of them called it a kidnapping because they didn't know what that word meant. They all seemed fine at the time, but most said later on that that was the defining moment. That was the origin story of their lives, even though in the moment they all seemed just fine. Yeah. And didn't a bunch of them later on have crimes involving holding other people against their will as adults, just weird reliving, reprocessing experiences where they had a lot of issues with things that didn't totally make sense, but seemed super related to that particular incident. I mean, you could really see how it was, you know, precisely the origin story for a lot of them. Actually, a lot of them really became interested in heroes and in superheroes, which is, you know, I talk a lot about in the book because they really wanted to see themselves as stronger or more capable, able to fight back if something like that happened again. But after that, they were primed, they were ready, you know, to be able to defend themselves or get away if something like that ever happened again, which, of course, something quite like that would probably not ever happen again. But still, they wanted to be ready. Yeah, who gets kidnapped twice, right, Jason? Oh, don't even start with me, you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not allowed to tell that story. It seems like the process of building resilience, especially as a young person, would be something that a lot of folks grow up and be proud of. I mean, you hear about that quite often, but you do mention some health drawbacks among resilient people. Being too resilient might actually be bad for our health because 
resilient people might just put up with too much crap because they're used to it, among other things. Well, you know, what the research shows is living with chronic stress, which is what most childhood adversities are. They tend to persist over months or even years. They're not one day events. So living with chronic stress is not so great for us. We become overexposed to our stress hormones. But resilient people aren't immune to chronic stress or to these adversities. They're just fighting back against them. And that's stressful too. So they are every bit as much at risk for the negative outcomes in adulthood of chronic stress, whether that's chronic disease or mental health problems, substance abuse, suicide, early mortality, even as people who grew up with chronic adversity. I mean, they're not immune. They may be in a better position in adulthood, having gotten themselves to good places to then find ways to dial down the stress that, you know, you kind of have to recognize when you've gotten to the other side of something and make a point of saying, I can't afford to live like this anymore. I'm in a safe place. I'm with good people. I need to find ways to reduce my stress before it's too late. I really focus on self-care with my resilient clients because they tend not to need a lot. They think they don't. So they grew up, you know, getting by on, well, I don't have time to eat. I don't have time to sleep. I mean, they're go, go, go trying to get out of their bad situations. And so I encourage them to find ways to reduce their stress, whether that's, you know, reading or knitting or podcasts or exercise, which is, of course, good for reducing stress no matter what. And I encourage them to tell their doctors that they've grown up with chronic stress because it does put you at risk for certain negative health outcomes. And that's a conversation you need to be having with your doctor so they can help you make healthy choices and ameliorate that risk. It reminds me when we spoke to General Stanley McChrystal and he had just done an interview on another show and they're like, well, we heard you only sleep four hours a night and you only eat one meal a day. And then we asked him about that and he's like, I don't do that on purpose. I do it because I'm in a war zone. You know, I can't eat three meals a day in front of troops who are hungry. I can't sleep nine hours. I got to plan people's life and death situations. Exactly. You know, sometimes when you grow up in a house with an alcoholic or in a neighborhood, you're desperate to get out of and resilient people become good at doing is what a trauma expert named Bessel van der Kolk calls dealing, not feeling. Then they become so good at dealing, they have trouble accessing their feelings. So I'll have adult clients say, I don't even know when I'm hungry. I don't even know when I'm tired. I don't even know when I need something. And that's something that you have to shift in adulthood, because it's not sustainable, you know, as General McChrystal is suggesting, he can't really live that way forever. He's just doing it when he needs to. Right. Yeah, exactly. We were joking after the show or at the end of that show, I said, your wife must have been really glad that you ended up retiring. And he said, yeah, she's more glad than anyone. I mean, it was, if you recall, he was kind of asked by Obama to resign for various reasons because of an article in the Rolling Stone. And I said, well, it's such a shame. And yet now you find yourself with a little bit of time to relax. And he's like, you know, an upside to this, which is that my wife has 8,000 vacations planned for the first time in their life. He met her, I think he was in the military academy. He's never had breathing room. He's never been able to go, all right, let's go to Italy and drink wine for two weeks. And most people who've undergone this type of thing have probably never even thought for a second that if they had two weeks off that they should use it to take care of their self. I would imagine a lot of people who've undergone a lot of adversity think, all right, the kids are gone at camp for a week. I need to clean the garage. I need to clean out the basement. 
I need to clean the house. I need to go help my mom. Right. Yeah, it's very hard. I mean, because you become wired, constantly scanning the environment. What needs to happen now? What could I do now? How could I get ahead now? How should I survive now? It's very hard to just say, I'll binge watch Mindhunter all day. I mean, that's not easy for people Good to choice. do when they're used to. <laughs> I did that recently, which I have to confess, but it's not easy for people to do just to dial it back. I think this quote is in your book. It's a quote from Buddha or from something written about Buddha. It says, you'll be punished not because of your anger, but by your anger. And this sort of reminds me of that as well. Not necessarily the anger part, but because we will often just dive in head first into taking care of others or into this whole concept of resilience to the point where it becomes a part of our identity and we can't even see outside the container that we've put ourselves in. What's interesting about anger is that there's actually been tons of cool research on how it can be very productive. It's a signal that, hey, whatever's happening, I don't like this. I don't accept this. This needs to change. And so for a lot of people who grew up with adversity, they'll say anger was useful to them in that it put them in that fight or fight or flight. And, you know, it doesn't mean they were punching someone in the face as much as they were saying, I don't accept this. I resist. And that that can be very useful for people fight-based emotion. You know, you're fighting back metaphorically against your situation. I think in adulthood, switching, you know, out of that fight or flight or letting go of needing to resist anymore can help people find some peace. What if we don't even necessarily know that we're in need of this? Because we're kind of talking in a circle here in a way because we're saying a lot of people who have dealt with this don't even know they need self-care. And there's probably somebody listening right now that goes, well, I did deal with a lot of adversity, but I don't really need all this self-care stuff because I'm so busy. Like the quote from your book, most people prefer the certainty of misery than the misery of uncertainty. And I think a lot of us just get stuck in that mode and we think, well, yeah, Jordan and Meg J are talking about somebody else, but I can't do this or I don't need this. I'm not in that category. How do we identify this? It's a bit of a puzzle because people who've grown up with adversity don't know it. And I don't mean, you know, it's a like a repressed memory and they don't know it. I mean that that was just normal for them. I mean, if you grow up with abuse in the home or with, you know, a parent away in jail or, you know, whatever the case is, that's just normal. And so oftentimes it's not until adulthood that people even go, wait a minute, I think what I grew up with was difficult and I can see how it's causing problems for me. And if someone isn't having problems in their life, then, hey, no need to change anything. But usually what happens is that early to middle adulthood, people start saying, I feel really tired. I feel 100 years old or I feel really alone because no one really knows me because no one knows all about all this stuff that, hey, come to think of it, I've never talked about. So, you know, I think people make that shift when they need to. And if everything's going great, then I guess maybe you don't need to. But it usually backs up on people. Meg, thank you so much. Is there anything else that I haven't asked that you want to make sure you tell us about? I wrote Supernormal so that people would feel understood. You know, it may be hard to quantify how that helps people, but every day I work with people behind closed doors who come into my office because they don't want to feel alone and they want to feel understood. And I wanted to write a book so that people who didn't have a therapist or didn't have a professor to talk about that, that they could get that from a book or from the library or from a podcast. So I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it with you today. 
Great episode, Jason. Super solid. I just wish we had more time so we could get in some of the stories that are in the book. Jay-Z, Andre Agassi, Stephen Colbert. A lot of people that we all know and love have really dealt with a lot of stuff. And it's helped make them who they are, which is the super normal that we know them today. Well, we can always have Meg back. It's not like this costs that much to make. <laughs> oh, really? You're going to give us a discount on the production cost? That's good to know. Well, Thanks for that. Uh, you know. Yeah. No. <laughs> great, big, great big thank you to Dr. Meg Jay. The book title is Super Normal. Of course, that'll be linked up in the show notes for this episode. And if you enjoyed this, don't forget to thank Dr. Meg on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well. And tweet at me your number one takeaway from Dr. Meg Jay. I'm at The Art of Charm on Twitter, and I'm also on Instagram at Jordan Harbinger. And if you like this and you wanna make sure you hammer down the takeaways, we have a worksheet for today's episode. The link to that, of course, is in the show notes at theartofcharm.com slash podcast. We also have our AOC challenge, which is all about improving your networking and your connection skills and inspiring those around you to develop a personal and professional relationship with you. The challenge is free. It's a fun way to get the ball rolling. It's a fun way to get some forward momentum and apply the things you're learning here on the show to your life every single day. We'll also send you our fundamentals toolbox that I mentioned earlier in the show. That toolbox includes a lot of great stuff that you can practically apply right out of the box. Start using it right away. Body language, nonverbal communication, persuasion tactics, the science of attraction, negotiation, networking and influence strategies, and everything else that we teach here on the show and at our school in LA during our live programs here at The Art of Charm. It will make you a better connector, it'll make you a better networker, it'll make you a better thinker, which is what we're all about here, and that's all at theartofcharm.com slash challenge. This episode of AOC was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor, and the show notes on the website are by Robert Fogarty. Transcriptions by transcriptionoutsourcing.net. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. If you can think of anyone who might benefit from the episode you've just heard, please pay us the highest compliment and pay it forward by sharing this episode with that person. It only takes a moment and great ideas are meant to be shared. So share the show with friends, share the show with enemies, stay charming and leave everything and everyone better than you found them.